Today's passage, I, uh, today's sermon is entitled God Keeps His Promises, Part 2. We're going to read this whole chapter together, okay? It's a little bit intimidating but because it's all a bunch of lists, but we're going to do it. Uh, excuse my Hebrew name pronunciation. Here we go, Ezra 2. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity from the, of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Reham, and Baana. The list of the men of the people of Israel. The descendants of Parosh, 2172. Of Shephatiah, 372. Of Ara, 775. Of Pahath, Moab, through the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2812. Of Elam, 1254. Of Zatu, 945. Of Zakai, 760. Of Benai, 642. Of Babai, 623. Of Asg. Gad, 1222, of Adonikam, 666, of Bigvi, 2056, of Adin, 454, of Adder, through Hezekiah, 98, of Bazai, 323, of Jorah, 112, of Hashem, 223, of Gibar, 95, the men of Bethlehem, of Naptopha, Oh, the men of Bethlehem, 123, of Natopha, 56, of Anatoth, 128, of Asmaveth, 42, of Kiriath-Jerim, Kephira, and Beeroth. 743, of Ramah and Geba. 621, of Mikmash. 122, of Bethel and Ai. 223, of Nebo. 52, of Magbish. 156, of the other Elam. 1254, of Harim. 320, of Lad, Hidad, and Ono. 725, of Jericho. 345, of Sana'a. 3006. 30. The priests, the descendants of Jedidiah through the family of Jeshua, 973, of Immer, 1052, of Pasher, 1247, of Harem, 1017. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua and Kadmiel of the line of Hadov, Hadoviah, 74. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 128. The gatekeepers of the temple, the descendants of Shalom, Adder, Talman, Akub, Hatita, and Shobai, 139. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, Hasufa, Tabaoth, Keros, Siaha, Padan, Labana, Hagaba, Akub, Hagab, Shalmai, Hanan, Gidal, Gihar, Riaya, Rezin, Nakoda, Gazam, Uza, Pasaya, Bezai, Ezna, Meunim, Nefusim, Bakbuk, Hakufa, Hauchur, Basluth, Mahida, Harsha, Parkos, Sisera, Tema, Naziah, and Hatifa, the descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotai, Hasophereth, Peruda, Jaala, Darkin, Giddel, uh, Shephatiah, Hadal, Pokereth, Hazabeim, and Ami. The temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon, 392. The following came up from the towns of Telmela, Telharsha, Kerub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Delaiah, Tobiah, Nakoda, 652. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakaz, Barzillai, a man who had married the daughter of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by that name. 
These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat of any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 200 male and female singers. They also had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants served, settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. Amen. Are you cheering the word of God? Or are you cheering that I got through this? Regardless, let's pray and let's begin. God, we thank you so much for this chapter. We thank you, God, for all the names that I mispronounced. And we thank you for every person that you see and notice and keep record of. We thank you, God, that you always see and notice us. Father, that we are the apple of your eye. And God, that you cherish us in your heart. And so, God, we ask that you, have, you help us to do exactly the same for you. Help us to cherish you in our hearts. May you be the apple of our hearts so that you might be everything to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, last week we said that God keeps his promises. And he does so by moving hearts. He does so by giving us all that is needed in order to do all that. God will always make sure that his will gets done and that his plans never fail. But today, believe it or not, um, we're going to actually see an even greater way that God keeps his promises. And it's all right here. In that huge passage, okay, uh, did you, was it obvious? Did you guys notice that when we read that whole chapter, it was a it was a chapter based upon God keeping His promise? With, is that what you got out of it? Probably not. And I get it. You know, whenever I, I I encounter a chapter with all those names, even in my Bible reading, I like skip over it. I'm very honest with you. A lot of times, I just skip over it. You know, I only read it out loud on the pulpit. Whenever, even preparing this message, I don't think I really read every single name. But you know, that's it's not confession time; it's preaching time. But but that's what it is. I mean, whenever I see a list like that, I get so intimidated, I just kind of move on, you know. And that's what happens. Sometimes I even tune out. But there's a huge promise that's actually embedded in this passage that is so powerful that I can't wait to share it with you today. And so here it is. I'll I'll cut to the quick. The promise that's actually here is the promise of our salvation. And it's found in verses 61 to 63. And we're going to read this again. And tell me if you can see it, right? And if you do, you're going to get excited. Here we go. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakaz, and Barzillai, a man who had named, who had married a daughter of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by that name, These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. Yes! Did you guys get it? Is that awesome? Should we just end the message right here and celebrate? 
Is that not awesome? Yes, you didn't get it? Okay, here we go. Uh, well, let me tell you what's happening in this passage. So what happened is we, we talked about last week, you know, these Israelites, they were exiled to Babylon. They were there for like you know, a little over 50 years, and now it's their opportunity to come back. And all of a sudden, they're coming back to Jerusalem, and what's happening is they're saying, okay, um, we're going to make sure that every single Israelite that comes back to Jerusalem is a legit Israelite. You know, it wasn't one of those bandwagon Babylonians that came along that wants to, you know, party with us. We want to make sure that you're a legit Jew, right? And especially if you're a priest, that's even more. There's a bigger burden for priests. We're going to make sure that you're a legit Israelite priest. So the list that we see here in 61 to 63 are the priests who could not prove that they were actually from a Jewish priestly line. And the reason why they couldn't prove it is because they didn't have a genealogy with them. They didn't have papers. They didn't have proof. They, they couldn't prove that they were actually from a Jewish priestly line. And so therefore, they were disqualified from the priesthood. Now, if you were one of those people that was like listed here, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? I mean, you were taken from your home 50 years ago. You were meant, you were probably enslaved in Babylonia for the past 50 years. Who keeps records? You know, how are we supposed to keep something like that? There's a 1500 or 1500 kilometer journey. Anyone could have dropped it. You know, we could have lost it on the way. How are we supposed to keep that? Oh, man, my little son, he probably played with them, burned it, you know, whatever. How are you supposed to keep it? It's so harsh. It's so unfair. And there's a lot of good reasons why they would argue those things. You know, come on, man. You know my family. For the past hundreds of years, we've been serving the temple. But just because we don't have a piece of paper that proves that we're a real Jew or a priest, you're, you're saying we can't do it anymore. And they're saying yes. But you have to realize why. The Israelite leaders were saying, you can't do it anymore. And the reason why the Israelite leaders said, you can't do it anymore, is very, very simple. If they were going to rebuild the temple, which is the reason why they came back to Jerusalem, and if anyone besides a true Israelite priest started to make sacrifices in that temple and started to serve that temple, if they weren't a true Israelite priest, God would not be happy. In the past, if you've read any of your Old Testament stories, anyone who improperly served in the temple, what happened to that priest? God killed them. That's pretty harsh. Okay? So they wanted to make sure that if anyone was going to enter into this temple, it was a true Israelite priest. And so in that sense, the Israelite leaders were like, look, we just want to save your life. You know? And not only that, we want to save our community. We don't want any of you guys to die. But then here's the question. What if you were genuinely a Jew and you were genuinely from the priestly line, but you just didn't have the proof? What do you do? Was there any way that you could be restored? Was there any way that you could be vindicated, that somehow, some way, you could be proven to be a true Jew and a true priest? And the answer was, in this passage, yes. This passage tells us that you could be restored to be a true priest of Israel. How? And this is what this passage says. You can only be restored if another priest, an outside judge, entered into the story. Here in verse 63, it says that that outside priest would use the Urim and the Thummim to determine whether you were a true priest. Now, Urim and Thummim are not part of the dwarves in the Hobbit story, even though it sounds just like them. But can anyone, can anyone guess what Urim and Thummim might be? Anyone? Bible scholars? Believe it or not, 
The Urim and Thummim were the names of stones that the priest kept in a pocket in his chest. And they were one, I don't know which one. One of them was the yes stone, and the other one was the no stone. You know, like people back then, people back in Israelite days, even in Jesus' day, they believed in casting lots. Did you ever hear that, that phrase, people cast lots in the Bible? This is one way that they actually cast lots. And this is how it would work. So if someone were to say, hey, I'm a true Jew and I'm part of the priestly line, I just lost my genealogy. Then what would happen is that person, that person, that priest in question would stand before the outside judge, this outside priest. And this outside priest would be like, okay, is this priest in question a true Israelite and a true priest of the priestly line? And he would reach into his pocket and if the yes stone came out, then he was fully restored. No questions. But if the no stone came out, then game over. You're done. Right? That's it. You could never be a priest again. Isn't that amazing? Right? How do you, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah, it's like, hey, hold up. You, are, are you serious? They left it to pure luck? You know, whether you're going to restore a whole priestly line back to to do this or not. And in our day, that's what, we, what it looks like, right? It looks like pure luck. It's 50-50. But the thing is, to the Israelites back then, they had this total belief that God was in full control of all things. You know, even to the point where if the priest is going to put his hand in a pocket, God's going to put the correct stone into his hand. Isn't that amazing? You know, we just don't have faith like that these days, do we? And even if we did, people would call us weirdos. Or they would just say, dude, that's just plain luck. But it wasn't. They trusted that God was in fully control of all of these things. And if a true priest, if the priest pulled out the yes stone, then that priest was fully restored. And every true priest that was a true priest was actually restored according to the system. Isn't that amazing? Right? So there it is. God's promise in salvation. You got it now? Is that clear now? Yes? Are we ready to celebrate? Is that awesome? Do you not get fully get it yet? Of course you don't because I didn't fully explain it. Well, let me unlock it for you. Believe it or not, this passage is a direct reference to whom? Yes, Jesus Christ. Okay, how? Well, let me explain it to you. The Bible says in the New Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible says that we were all created to be priests. Did you guys know this? All of us were created to be priests. What do priests do? Priests are people who are set apart to serve God and to help other people worship God with their lives, right? Essentially, that's what a priest is. A priest is the person who's set apart for God to help other people worship God. 1 Peter 2.9. This is what... God says, he says, but you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What is this verse saying? This verse is saying that we were chosen, that we were saved to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's possession. Why? So that we could proclaim him in all that we do. None of us serve in a temple, but all of us now 
are called to use our whole lives, not only so that we could serve God, but to help everybody else worship God with their lives. Have you ever looked at your life like that? That's your role. That's what God created you for. That's what God saved you back to, right? So that you could be set apart to serve God with all that you have so that you could help others as you're living upon this earth worship God with their lives as well. So the question is, what does this have to do with our passage? It's very simple. If you never noticed it, if you never thought about it, the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is very, very simple. It's a story of God restoring his exiled people, not only back to him, but back to what he originally created them for. That's it. What do you mean? He Restoring exiled people. When were we exiled? Well, if you ever read your creation story, when God created Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do to them? He exiled them out of the garden. Do you guys notice that, right? It's a, it's a detail that we forget. But he literally exiled them out of the garden. Why? Because they sinned. Their, this relationship that used to be so intimate and wonderful, everything that they did in the garden was for God. You know, Adam and Eve helped each other worship God. It was the most beautiful thing. But the moment that he sinned and that relationship was broken and they became distant from God, God said, because of that, now I will exile you right, from paradise. right? And from that moment that we were exiled, our spiritual genealogy became broken and lost as well. Do you guys see that? And because of sin, just like God said when he created Adam and Eve, our destiny now became death. And that's exactly what happened, right? But God made a way for us to be restored, not only back to him, but back to what we were originally created for. Since we could not prove that we were his, God sent another priest to vindicate us. And that priest was who? Jesus Christ, right? And when Jesus Christ came to this, and this is how he did it. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he lived the sinless life that we were supposed to live. When he died upon the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God that all of us were supposed to absorb. And therefore, he paid the penalty for all of the sins that we committed that we deserve to go to hell for. Right? And that's exactly what, why did he do that? And he did that, here we go. He did that so that he could exchange his perfect, holy qualifications as a priest with our sinful record. And the moment we put our faith in what Christ did for us, that's the moment that God no longer sees us as his exiled people who are sinfully destined towards death. But that's when God sees us as a fully restored holy priest because of what Christ did for us. And the thing is, we don't access that through stones. But that restoration can only be accessed through what? Faith in the chief cornerstone. You guys like that, the stone stone thing? Okay. <laughs> I wrote that. I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, let's get back. Eddie, you suck. Okay. You know, the moment, but the thing is, but that's true. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he no longer, God no longer sees you as a, 
as an exiled person, but you are fully restored. Fully restored, no questions. No one ever looks back. You're fully restored to be his priest forever so that you can serve and worship him forever. Christ was the priest and the stone that restored us and reconciled us back to all that God intended for us. Isn't that amazing? That's the story of Ezra 2. It's absolutely wonderful. You know, the story of Ezra 1 and 2 is not only the story of God keeping his promises, but it's the story of God keeping the greatest promise of all, which is that we can have salvation. We can be restored back to God through his son, Jesus Christ, the high priest, the chief cornerstone who restores us back to God. That's the glory of this passage. If you are here today and you are saved, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, today is a day to celebrate, you know, because no matter what's going on in our lives today, and I know some of us, you know, are are struggling, some of us are going through some tough times. I know I am, even deep inside my heart and in my mind. But you want to know something? It's this truth that constantly brings me back, right? We were people who were destined for death. We are a person who had no one to vindicate us and to fight for us and to declare us as gods. But Christ came along, gave his life to do that. And now there is no question in God's mind that we are his children, that he loves us, that we are his, that he wants to use us. And that we'll be, for, we'll be with him forever. That is something to celebrate. Today is a day to celebrate. And I hope today you celebrate that with all that you have, no matter what's going on in your life today. But maybe there's some of us here who have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that, if that's the case, I'm glad you're here. Maybe this is the reason why you were supposed, you're here and you're supposed to listen to this message. I always believe that if there are people who never put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're listening, it's because God wants them to hear what he really wants to say to you. This is God saying that he wants you, that he loves you, and that he wants you to be a part of his family once again. Be restored back to God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll give you guys an opportunity to do that at the end of our message. But before I get to the end of my message, I want to just share some two very small points. And hopefully these two small points tie not only today's message, but the past two messages together. And the two points I want to share with you are these. Number one, God not only keeps his promises, but he keeps his promises to us. His promises are personal. Right, You know, we're not going to read it over again, but verses 1 to 60, out of the 70 verses, uh, there are so many names listed there, right? There are. And the thing is, what are those names? Those are the names of every family and every family line that decided to go back to Jerusalem. Every one of these families that are listed here were um, were vetted. They were actually, they made sure that these guys were true Jews coming back to Jerusalem, right? And every person of every family was accounted for. That's why there's a number after that, right? And some of them are the weirdest numbers. There's even a 666 number. You know, every, every number is there. It's, it's, you know, it's amazing. And the thing is, when we read, when we read lists like that, like we go, oh man, I don't want to read this. Da, 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 da. And, and, and true. But you want to know something? The longer those lists get, the more I get excited. And the reason why the, the reason why I get excited is very, very simple. There's one, there's one thing that just stands out to me. And I, and this is what I conclude. 
wow, God, for you to write all these names over and over and over and over and keep on going, keep on going. And for you to like have all these like exact numbers, they're not even rounded off. They're like 623 and, you know, they're exact numbers. That means not only do you know every member of your family, but you value each one of those members of your family and you must actually care about them. The numbers means something huge to me. You know, a lot of times when we read our Bible, we get lost in the macro picture of God and the people of Israel. Sometimes even in church, we get lost in terms of like God and his relationship to us as his people. But when we read passages like this, the two things that we know for sure is, number one, he knows our name, no matter how funny it sounds. And each one of us are counted for. Jesus even says that he knows every hair that's upon our heads. Isn't that amazing? And it's something to celebrate. God cares. God knows me. And he cares for me. And that's what you can get from a list. And it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. God, so when we tie it with what we're talking about these past two weeks, God not only cares about you and loves you, but he's a God that keeps his promises to you in your life. And what that means is that you can pray to him personally to stir hearts in your life to accomplish his will, right? You can pray for his will to be done, not only within your life, not only within the lives of the people around you, no matter what you face, right? No matter what you face, no matter how huge the mountain is, no matter how impossible the task may be, because it's all for his glory. We can pray those things and believe. And we can pray that his promise of salvation will come to people around us because that's what God's will is. And that's why we are here. And that's why we're serving as priests. So pray for people around you. Pray for non-believers around you. And the thing is, he's going to answer those prayers. He's going to keep those promises. Why? Because not only do those answered prayers and those kept promises bring him more glory, but they move our hearts to adore him and to make us worship him because we realize how awesome he truly is. And, tr- and quite honestly, that's all God ever wanted. A people that is continually in awe of who he is and love being his. That's all he ever wanted. God not only keeps his promises, but he keeps his promises in us. Number two, our worship strengthens the more we treasure God. At the end of this passage, verse 69, we read something really interesting. It says that these Israelites, these Israelites, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work of the temple 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Okay, I, I converted all this to 2021 Australian dollars. Okay, it translates into this. It translates into 500 kilograms of gold and three tons of silver. And here's the value. $41 million of gold was donated and $3 million of silver. That's not chump change, is it? That's a lot. Especially if you were like exile and you were like slaves. I mean, it's not like every person had a lot of gold, right? But they all gave. 
to this temple. I mean, each person, if you had gold and you were going back to rebuild your life, gold is valuable. You need money to rebuild your life. You got to build a house. You got to, maybe you want to open up a store. There's a lot you can do with that money. But what did they do? They gave to rebuild the temple instead. Why? Why would they do that? Simple. Because they, that just shows how much and how highly they valued the worship of God, not only within their lives personally, but in their community. That is what they wanted for their community. They wanted the worship God, of God to be central, not only to their community, but to their identity as a people. And I think that's a great lesson for us today. Am I going to ask you to donate all your gold and all your silver and all your precious jewels to the church? No, I am not. Thank God, right? You can donate to me. but Anyway, no. But what we see in sense from these Israelites was how valuable and how precious true and sincere worship was to them. They valued it so highly that they gave what was most precious to them to build the worship of God in their lives and to make the worship of God the identity of their community. Isn't that amazing? That's what they did. And I believe that's what we need to do as well. And that's what I'm asking you to do as well. How are we going to do that? This is how we're going to do that. This is what I want you to do. Consider the things in your life right now that are most valuable to you. Maybe there's a top three. What, what things are most valuable to you in your life? Right? So here's the question then, now that you have those things in mind. What would it look like if you offered those things up to God to use them for his worship rather than strictly for your personal benefit. I'm going to guess that those top threes are things that make you happy, that make you joyful, that make you feel complete, all those things, which is good. But what would it look like if somehow, some way, you use those things to increase the worship and the glory of God in your life? That's something to pray about, isn't it? That's something to really consider, and that's what I want you to do. I want to really challenge you to pray about those things, Right? Because when the, when the people of God choose the worship of God to be their highest value as a people, we choose to, in order to do that, we got to choose to give our best and what's most valuable to us in order for that to happen. I really believe that when the people of God do the same, worship is going to become central to us. And it's, become, it's going to become central to our community. I think if you're a little on the older side like me, maybe 40 plus, you know, and if you've been a part of the church for a while, maybe for 20 years or so, you know, all of us have these experiences where we look back and we remember how amazing church was. Like people lived at church seven days a week. Not that church is everything. But how do you go to church six days a week? Some of us, we look at our parents, why are they at church six days a week? All that kind of stuff. But what we see in them is what? Very simple. If let's, let's whittle it down to the bottom line. They sacrificed time, money, energy, and other desires. Why? Because they believe that worship is their highest value. That's all they want to do. And when you're part of a church that values worship that highly together, it's infectious. And God just loves dwelling in that place. Look, I'm not ever saying, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of saying, oh, you know, especially if you're one of the older people like me, the, the danger is don't look back and say, man, I, I hope the church could become like that once again. No, don't, we, we don't ever want that. 
You know what we want, though? We want people looking forward and saying, that's what I want to build in us. And I believe the way to get there is when we all choose to say, hey, this is what I want to value most in my life, and I'm willing to make the things that I value within my life as a worship. I want to make those things a worship to God. And when we all choose to do that corporately as a community, I believe the worship of Christ is going to increase in our church. And I want to see that happen, man. There's too many churches that are dead. You know what I'm talking about? There's too many churches that just exist. I'm judging. God's going to judge me for judging. You know? But let's become a church that worships. Let's become a people that worships. I want to close my message today by sharing something that a Korean pastor once shared with me. Um, You know, a Korean pastor, I was struggling in my life. Um, many years ago, maybe like 50, like 20 years ago, when I was like 30, <laughs> you know, and, uh, I, I was, uh, and so, you know, uh, anyway, he goes, Eddie, do you know what the word testament means? Did I share this with you guys? Do you know what the word testament means? And I was like, he's like, Pastor Eddie, do you know what the word testament means? Like Old Testament, New Testament? I was like, no, I don't, <laughs> you know, even though it's in the Bible. And I didn't. Do you guys know what the word testament means? It means promise. Did you guys know that? And the reason why I say it was a Korean pastor, because he goes, you know, in the, even in the Korean, it literally translates to old promise, new promise, right? I don't know if you guys ever noticed that. But, but and it's, it's, it's bad because it sounds like there's two promises. There's an old promise and there's new promise. It isn't. It's just one promise. It's the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the promise, but it's just the older part of the story that tells the promise, and the New Testament is the newer part or the most, more recent part. That's why there's old and news, right? Um, but I never saw the Bible like that. Did you? Did you know that the Bible is just one big promise? That's the whole story of all 66 books. One big promise, which is the promise of salvation to restore his people back to him, to become priests forever, to serve him and to worship him and to help others do so through his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. Right? That's why every passage and every book of the Bible either points to Christ or is about Jesus. It is. Right? And because it is, we can be confident that God will always keep every promise that has to do with his Son. Not only in salvation, but in our lives as well. And the reason why I say it like that is because once again, I was it was a time where I was struggling, just like I shared last week. And that was very helpful to me because when I was around 30, 31 years old, I was very, very frustrated. I was in Chicago and I was very, very frustrated at God because I felt like he wasn't keeping his promises to me. You know, I um I wasn't getting popular as a pastor, which unfortunately some pastors really want to become. I definitely wasn't getting rich as a pastor. You know, I wasn't like becoming respected and renowned and well-known or anything like that. I don't know if I was even respected by my own congregation. I think I was, but, you know, um, I was still single at 31 years old. You know, I was struggling because all my friends got married and had kids by 26. And, uh, you know, I hated going to, going to weddings and stuff like that. You, I hope you never experienced that. But it was a, I was a very frustrated person. I was frustrated with the current status of my life in so many ways. And once again, I started to blame God and I started to question God in every way as a result. 
And my friend simply said this. He said, Eddie, it's, it doesn't seem, when you share your life with me, it doesn't seem that your life is centered upon the promises of Christ, but it's centered upon the assumptions of your desires. Maybe you should learn how to center your life upon the promises of Christ. And not only will your heart change, but your whole perspective will change. When you look in the mirror, the reflection will change. And it did. And that, that was like a wake-up call to me, even as a pastor at 31 years old. You know, God doesn't keep his promises just to keep his promises. He keeps his promises to increase the worship of Christ within our lives. And when we begin to center our whole lives upon that promise, that's exactly what he does. He increases the worship of Christ within our lives. Let's be a people that centers our life, our lives upon the promises of Christ so that the worship of Christ will always increase in us and in our church. Let's pray. You know, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, can I invite you to do so today? You know, he loves you so much. He came to save you because you couldn't save yourself. You were separated from God because of your sin. But the punishment of all that sin was paid for upon the cross by Jesus Christ. Right? And he came to replace your absolute sinfulness, comprehensive sinfulness with his perfect holiness and righteousness so that you could be declared forgiven and holy and so that you can now live out your calling as a priest of God. That all happens when the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment that you say, I believe in Christ and I believe in what he did for me and that's what I want to do right now. If that's you, I'd like to invite you just to talk to God and say, I believe in Jesus and what he did for me. And, you know, if you want, you can repent for some of your sins, or, you know, make some commitments to turn your life around, but mostly just thank God for sending his son Jesus to do that for us, to be that priest, to be that cornerstone for us. For others here who might actually be saved already, let's make the worship of God the most precious thing within our lives once again. Let's use everything that God's given us, no matter what that might be, so that we might worship him more. Let's increase his worship and glory, not only personally, but corporately as a church. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you, God, that when we couldn't save ourselves, you sent your son to save us. And to restore us back to be your people. Father, we pray that that story will never get old or grow old within our hearts. But the older it gets, may it be cherished. May the love and the affections behind that story continually deepen within our hearts and within our minds and within our experience of you. Father, so that our affections and our desires would be driven by those truths. And Father, so that the outpourings into our lives would just be characterized by your glory here and there your eternal work here and there so that your pleasure might always rest upon us. Father, we pray that that would transform us to truly be a worshiping community, a community that all we want to do is hang out with you and love you and worship you and thank you. So God, we pray, may that one story, that great story of scripture, your story, become greater within our lives. We thank you, God, so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.